Hello, my name is Graham Alcott, and you're listening to Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness and success in their work and life. And on this episode, I'm talking to Sally Ann Airy. Sally Ann was one of the first female commanders in the Royal Navy, was also the Royal Navy's first working mum, and she is now a mindfulness and leadership coach based in the French Alps. So this is a really interesting episode and really fun to follow this on from uh, Sam Conniff Allende a couple of weeks ago, which was all about being more pirate. Now we're talking about being in the Navy. Actually, Sam's book has a little quote on the front which says, I'd rather be a pirate than be in the Navy. It's a Steve Jobs quote. And uh, so it just felt like the most fitting transition to go from pirate to Navy. Um, so on this episode, you're going to hear some really interesting stories from Sam about just how uh, how the Navy does leadership, really, and how leadership is uh, very much embedded in how the Navy operates. But also some really interesting cultural stuff that I wasn't expecting around just how the Navy would work as well. We talk about identity, how a job like that just inherently becomes a big part of your identity and then how do you shift that how do you move out of that and into something very different and we also talk a lot about mindfulness so if you're interested in experiencing mindfulness if you're not someone who practices mindfulness regularly then I think this will really help and likewise if you are someone who's a big mindfulness practitioner mindfulness fan then I think you'll get something from this I think Sally Ann has some very uh, deep experiences around mindfulness and just a really wise head to bring into it so we talk about the navy we talk about identity we talk about mindfulness we also talk about some really super honest stuff towards the end where Sally Ann really opens up about some of her regrets in life as well and, and things that she feels have kind of held her back over the years um, so super honest one and just full of wisdom so let's get straight into it this is Sally Ann Airy round at my house in Brighton so she's just in Brighton for a few days away from her home in the French Alps and so let's get into it. We're over a cup of tea. It's myself and Sally Ann Airy. Um, I'm with Sally Ann Airy. How are you doing? <laughs> doing very well, Graham. <laughs> um, and uh, we're in my house in Brighton on a very, it's been a, lots of very bright uh, mornings in October. Um, here. I think we've been very lucky. <laughs> it's a beautiful day, isn't um, it? Yeah. So a beautiful day here in Brighton. Yeah. Um, sat on the sofa at my place. Uh, what brings you to Brighton, first of all? Let's, let's start there. Oh, do you know what? I just, I live in the mountains um, in the French Alps and I miss the sea. Mm. I spent a lot of my life yeah. in an organisation that was all about the sea, yeah. which maybe we'll talk about a bit later. And so coming back to the sea is important to me. It kind of fuels something that I otherwise miss. And I love Brighton. I love the energy of it. And I've met a lot of people over the years who live here. Yeah. So it makes sense when I want to go to the sea to come here. And I've just had a lovely couple of days catching up with people. So it's nice. It's been really nice. And we first met also as part of um, Altitude and the Happy Start of School, which has its kind of Brighton roots, yeah. doesn't it, as well? So it's a whole yeah. little uh, yeah. little network that we kind of have in common, I guess. And, and yeah, people. and it's funny, you know, Graeme, because uh, we got to a point in our life, my husband and I, our kids, pretty much grown up at this point, that we were living in, in Moscow at the time, and we travelled a lot in our life and never really chosen where we lived yeah. we kind of just went yeah. where the work was and so we got to a point where we said what are we going to do next you know we've got another big span of life ahead what are we going to do and then the question became actually where do we want to live mm. and crikey we can actually choose within reason and so then from that the question became what do we want to wake up to in the morning right. and actually yeah. strangely it was the mountains and because we speak French it then became the French Alps and then we wanted to be near a good airport so we could continue working and traveling and seeing family. So that became Geneva and we drew a circle around Geneva and we ended up where <laughs> we are now. But it's, nice. but it's lovely. But I, yeah, I miss the sea. Um, so it's lovely to be able to nip on a plane and come over easy peasy. Yeah, nice. And after here, you're going to do a talk at Propellinet, is that right? Yeah, so I've done some work so with the wonderful Jack Hubbard who happens to be a neighbour in our valley, what he calls Dream Valley, yeah. um, renamed aptly. Uh, so I did some uh, mindfulness work actually at Propellinet. 
I say work, I showed up and I did some mindfulness sessions and how we can embrace mindfulness in our day to day to bring space and clarity to what we do. And I have a workshop I call The Power of Pause, which I did there for them. And then I ended up doing monthly sessions, which was cool. Oh, wow. uh, and what we did, we did it on the days when they had board meetings. So right. I'd also do like 10, 15 minutes with the board before their meeting to get them into a more creative space so that their meetings, this is Jack's idea, but so that their meetings more aligned, I think, to what um, he was looking for. And that seemed to work really well. So that's that's cool. lovely because yeah. going into a board meeting after a long day and busyness and all of that stuff, you're kind of not quite in the right headspace to, to really think clearly and yeah. to you know to have your best ideas and to yeah to listen well and all those yeah. kind of things right well, when, so that must you know, be the board of a company the board of an organization yeah. owes it i think to the company to have its meetings in the in the best way possible yeah. so that you know they're set they're the, they're the thinkers i mean you hope everyone in the organization is a thinker but you know the board has a responsibility to think clearly and do the best it can for its people so it needs to clear the space, I think, to have those conversations. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it, so it, worked, sure. it worked well. It was fun. So let's talk about when we first met. Um, yeah. We were talking. We were talking about mindfulness. Yeah. We were talking about leadership. We're probably talking about productivity because I was involved. And um, then you just, after about ten or fifteen minutes of the conversation, you just went, "Oh yeah, I used to be a commander in the Royal Navy." I just thought, whoa! <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't see that coming from all the other uh, conversations that that we had. So, um, and we've had a few conversations since, just um, just about leadership and what that looks like in yeah. in the navy, which I just thought was just really fascinating and um, was just really keen to to share that conversation really and just to get on the podcast. So, yeah, thank uh, so thank you for being here. No, thank you. Um, so let's start with the beginning of that. So, how did you? How did you first get involved with with joining the Navy? What was that process like and and what inspired you to do that? (laughs) Well, the the truth is it was completely random. (laughs) 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 Um, I had lived by the sea um, in Torbay in in Devon. So I loved the sea and I had a little dinghy and I did a lot of sailing. And so there's a whole affinity with the sea. But actually, I went to university bang in the middle of the country to get away from the sea. Okay. So I went to Leicester University. Um, and I think it was because I was looking for a complete culture change. I wanted, I'd been to an all-girls grammar school. I just wanted to get right away from that whole environment <laughs> right, okay. and, and, and be in something that felt more progressive and interesting and away from the sea to experience yeah. something different. But then, you know, I got to the end of, I studied languages, I got to the end of that. And I loved, you know, speaking and working with languages. And I thought, what can I do? I don't want to be a translator. I don't want to be an interpreter. I don't want to do some boring thing. I want to travel and have adventure and have fun and meet new people. Um, and then I saw, you know, the sort of Navy recruitment thing randomly in the city one day when I was walking yeah you know kind of in my jeans and t-shirts pretty much all I owned and wandered in and said well this is who I am what can you offer me and spookily they were quite interested (laughs) and then I went through this whole process that became more and more intriguing yeah which took a long time it's a lot of assessment and a lot of tests and a lot of and I ended up at what they call the Admiralty Interview Board because they decided I was officer material um, which was a three-day extraordinary kind of event. Yeah. I, I, mean, I arrived with a little overnight bag with one change of shirt, I think, because um, that's all I owned. <laughs> and other, all the other candidates were arriving with like, huge suitcases and masses of different outfits. That was all you owned? Well, I was a student. I had no money. You know, I'd just come out of being... You know, I really had no money. I oh, in terms life. of like formal clothes, you mean? Like you had, so you had to dress formally for the... Ah, uh, okay, yeah, okay, fine. You I'm must have more clothes. Well, no, I'm <laughs> sorry, I was making a huge assumption. A huge assumption. Yeah, no, I owned things like jeans and sweaters yeah. and that normal student stuff. Yeah. But in terms of smart clothes, I, right. had, I had one skirt and a couple of tops, and that was kind of it. So I arrived with this little thing, yeah. realizing, oh my God, what have I come into? And so I just changed my top for, for the different <laughs> events, whereas everyone else was changing their entire outfit. Um, but anyway, it seemed to go all right, and they 
accepted me in and I went off to Germany for a few months. Yeah. Uh, and what then, happens at the Admiralty recruitment? The Admiralty board, interview board. For three days. For three days, what happens? Um, Admiralty interview board. So you're interviewed, yeah. uh, but also you're put through a series of practical tests with the team of, well, the, the, what then becomes the team of people who are also applying, yeah. you know, to be officer. And is it a um, bit like that game show, The Krypton Factor? So you do like a bit of verbal reasoning and a bit of physical challenge and is it a bit like that you do, do yeah. like so problem te- solving and all you, you're, doing, you're being tested across a variety yeah. of leadership skills okay. and then you're in practical leadership situations where you're given a problem and what they look they look to see where who, who emerges as the leader Mm. and who emerges as the follower supporter yeah. and both are good depending yeah. on the context and if somebody is naturally stepping forward as the leader and they're taking charge then it's interesting then how all the other roles in the team just naturally adapt with people you've just met yeah and that yeah. just happens and so they're looking to see the behaviors of the individuals and how they supported each other and mm. how well they worked as a team because what's essential in the navy is teamwork it's kind of the fundamental core of what makes it all work yeah so those were the tests. And so I just found the whole thing intriguing and hilarious, actually, if I'm honest. Um, whereas a lot of other people, I think, who'd prepared themselves really well were quite tense about it. Right. There's a lesson there in not being overprepared. Right, yeah. And just actually just showing up. and Showing up and being and, yourself. Yeah. Um, and so that worked. And I joined the Navy about six months later. Yeah. And um, I saw you do a talk recently. And one of the things that you mentioned in the talk that, again, just sort of knocked my socks off for the second time was you were the first working mum that the Navy was aware of like so the first person who was a working mum in the Navy yeah yeah a timing thing yeah but for sure that's what happened so I joined the Navy in 1981 where when you got pregnant as soon as you couldn't fit into your uniform you had to leave wow (laughs) a whole different era yeah and then not long before that I mean decade or so as a woman not as a maloke but as a woman when you got married you had to leave so this is a whole you know so, so you, bizarre so you could be married and just with no kids and still in your career but you'd still have to leave still the to. navy yes yes and so that is just because the um, value set is that oh that person's probably going to have kids and okay. so, so it's like a judgment thing or it could have been um, yeah. I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that it was actually I say the Navy and ultimately we all men and women became part of the Navy but actually I joined the Women's Royal Naval Service okay I didn't realise I was doing that because I'd done so little research yeah um, but shouldn't <laughs> I'm laughing, thinking the people listening to this. But no, um, but yeah, I, I, um, no, I hadn't actually. I hold my hand up, done very little research, so I hadn't quite taken this in that I wasn't yeah. going to have equal opportunity to my male counterparts. This was news to me, wow. and I was pretty horrified. And I spent a decade um, voicing this mm. and writing about it and getting stuff published about how I just felt that. Um, the job ought to be related to ability and have nothing whatsoever to do with anything else. And eventually that did change 10 years later. But um, I joined the Women's Royal Naval Service and only um, a relatively short time before had the Women's Royal Naval Service become part of the Naval Discipline Act, which is an act of law which defines behaviour and says what you can and can't do and disciplines you when you break the rules so it's like the law in the navy the naval discipline act big deal and that's what courts martial all about when you have when you're caught and you've heard about court martials right so when you have a court martial it's because you did something against the naval discipline act right okay Okay. so the Royal naval service wasn't part of that until a few years before and i think that's probably why when um you know, women got pregnant, sorry, when women got married, they had to leave was because there just wasn't any provision for married women in that kind of structure. I mean, it was, it is bizarre. It's even difficult to even talk about now because I, I, I even though I lived through this yeah. almost that I didn't live through that part. I was married and was allowed to stay. Um, but it was, it was pretty close. So it's odd and I'm a very equal-minded person. So it was strange to be part of that for a while. But mm. there was enough that was fun about it. Yeah. There was enough that was challenging yeah. about it. I had some great opportunities. I was lucky that I kind of put up with it. 
because it, the balance of it was still okay. And then I, but then I did speak for changing it. Yeah, and so and then you became a commander. Okay, so you don't. I mean, that's over time, right? Yeah. So you go through the ranks like anything sure. else. So yeah, so I started as a. Um, well, what's now the equivalent of a sub-lieutenant. It was called something else in the Women's Royal Naval Service, but and then lieutenant, and then lieutenant commander, and then commander. Yeah, but in those days, there weren't many women commanders. I mean, mm. I wasn't the first by any means, but there weren't many. And the thing that, what happened, so what happened in 1991 is that the political decision was taken for women across the armed forces, across the three services, to become combatant to be able to be in the front line, yeah. serving in a warship, flying planes, doing all the things they weren't allowed to before. Mm. And with that political decision came the right to get pregnant and stay. Uh, right, okay. I was in my mid-30s and I took a long-term view. I mean, I really, really, really wanted, and because I'd advocated for this flipping thing, to serve at sea, to do all the stuff that my male counterparts could do. I was also in my mid-30s and I took the decision to have kids instead mm. um, because I thought, when I'm 50, what will I most regret? Mm, right. And if I blow this opportunity to stay in, in the Navy and have kids, which I'd sort of put off, um, I, uh, anyway, so that's what happened. So I decided to start a family. Luckily that happened. Um, as it happened, I had twins, probably to do with age or whatever, um, and uh, I went back to work, and I was just the first officer to do that. Yeah, okay. And it was just timing. But it was interesting, because then I became like the voice, the expert, on how that all works. And so they'd send people to me for advice, <laughs> um, in quotations, advice on... Um, you know, how, how to make all that happen. Because yeah. it was very new. It was an organisation who had no clue how to manage all that. And it does feel so weird. So much of that feels almost Victorian. Yeah. And yet, to a lot of people listening to this, that's in their lifetimes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. unless you're quite young, you've lived through that era of, yes. of all of those changes yes. having to be made, which just yes. feels quite remarkable. And it's in my lifetime, obviously. Yeah. And yet I can barely believe it. Yeah. This might not be a one sentence answer <laughs> this might be 10 minutes of chat but what do you think the navy taught you about leadership hmm. everything <laughs> <laughs> that i took for granted yeah because it's just part of the dna of the navy you know of how you show up how you define very clearly what it is that needs to be done, how you make sure you've got the resources to get it done, how you look at the results that you need, what success looks like, how you marshal your team, and how you expect your team to be intimately involved with the whole process. That each one of the each member of the team takes full responsibility for their part. Yeah. So you and it's teamwork, essentially. Um, and you you know, I've, people often, um, I've had hilarious conversations with people where they kind of assume that because I learnt my leadership in the Navy, I must be very directive, I must, you know, boss people about. And that's, I suppose, something to do with the image that they've got of what service life is about. And mm. it's very wrong. And that's probably the Navy's fault for not describing it better. And I think the Navy's getting better at that now. Yeah. But it's entirely wrong because it's naval leadership is all about, as I said, earlier is about the teamwork it's about bringing people with you and you can't do that by barking orders at them it's just not going to work and if you want people to take responsibility you have to delegate you have to empower them you have to you know make and that works with empathy and compassion and all these things that are supposedly sort of soft yeah. skills and they kind of are soft skills but they're also vital to making things work well and to being actually optimally productive so um yeah, I learned everything from that. But you know what? It took me a few years after I left the Navy. I mean, I chose to leave the Navy after like 23 years and do something different. I was ready, I felt, for something different. I didn't know what it was. It took me a few years to realise how amazing all yeah. that had been. <laughs> and that it wasn't the norm, dare I say. There were plenty of brilliant organisations out there and companies and doing amazing stuff. But this sort of top class, mm. you know, supremely efficient way of working with people is quite unusual and you were just telling me about a book 
there's a book that's just come out about yeah. um, where the author's basically saying, yeah. I've studied leadership for a long time and I think the Navy does it best. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, I haven't got it on me right now, but actually I think the book might have come out four or five years ago, but I've just come across it because okay. I, I heard it on the radio or something, I think, in, a, in an interview. Um, but yeah, it's really lovely because he's, he's never been in the Navy. Uh, he's been a business coach all his life. He's, you know, he's done leadership coaching across multiple organisations. He's a highly educated, he's given this a lot of thought and has a lot of experience. And he spent three years researching in the Navy, interviewing people, and he's written this book commissioned by the Chief of Naval Personnel at the time. And his conclusion is that this is the best leadership he's ever seen. Wow, okay. So that was really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think it is that sets it apart? It's the teamwork. I mean, I know that's a really kind of bland answer, but it is the teamwork. It's We have a thing in the Navy, and you see, there I am. I left 14 years ago, I'm still saying we have. Because we. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's like, it's just part of it becomes part mm. of who you are actually and that's the struggle afterwards but that's a different subject but yeah um we have this thing that uh what the single most important factor is the sailor now obviously that has to be offset against other resources and and other constraints and naval programming and defense and political requirements and all of those things which are, are realities but when you're leading that is it those people that you're leading are the single most important factor. Mm. And that's what you have yeah. ingrained. And I guess that positions how, how you manage the whole thing. Yeah. Nice. Does that answer it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about what you just semi got onto articulating <laughs> there. Um, just about that identity thing. Yeah. So obviously you've gone from being a commander in the Royal Navy to now teaching leadership and mindfulness and stuff that on the surface kind of feels like there's this very hard energy to, to Navy leadership. And then this very soft energy to yeah. mindfulness. And I think there's a lot more depth to both of those things, a lot more nuance about those things. Um, but it feels like there's a big transition in there and a, and a very different, yes. um, different kind of identity to be had with what you're doing now. Um, so just tell me about that, you know, that, that transition of moving away from, mm. Of, of moving away from the Navy and moving away from it being we to being they. <laughs> <laughs> it's still we. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, uh, that was really hard. It's an interesting, on reflection, interesting example, I think, at least for me personally, of even though you might choose to do something, that doesn't make it easy. You kind of think you made a choice, right? Whatever it may be. Therefore, that's going to make it easier and no no it didn't mm. so I chose to leave the navy because I had a sense there was something else I wanted to do in my life I was uh, in my mid 40s um, I did go through a lot of change at the time changes of relationship moved to a different country so there's a lot of change but what uh, happened after I left is that I well I kind of fell apart and over time, I can say it easily now, but it took me a long time to realise that the Navy had become who I was. Mm. Even something as simple as what do you do, I had a ready answer. So we moved to Eastern Europe. We were working, living and working in Ukraine. And uh, yeah, I just felt purposeless. I realised that I'd lost my purpose, mm. which was hideous. Yeah that I'd relied so much on my work for that purpose, but I lost it. So I went from this kind of doing, doing high functioning, successful person with a, a role and an identity and that's who I was to actually not having a clue. So I moved through a very difficult, a period of, diff of pain actually, it was painful. Mm. Yeah, no, it was painful. And um, I became unwell, you know, I mean, it was not nice. And then I gradually came out of it. And uh, I got to a point where people would say, what do you do? And I'd say nothing. <laughs> it was so liberating. <laughs> it feels like you have to have the blank canvas first to then put something new on. I think maybe. so. Yeah. I think that's what happened. I went through a process of getting to the blank canvas. And then I, and then I think once I did that stuff, other stuff started to happen because I was open to it. Hmm. So then I encountered mindfulness through the writing initially of Thich Nhat Hanh, wonderful 
Zen Buddhist master, incredible guy. So I found his stuff online. I started, I ordered his books on Amazon. I, you know, read his books. And then I went on my first retreat to his wonderful retreat center in Southwest France called Plum Village. And that started to change everything because I actually started to learn how to connect with some deeper person within me that I didn't really know anything about. Mm. And then that has become a big part of your purpose now too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've found this thing that I know is amazing. Mm. And it's nothing to do with woo-woo sitting on cushions with your, you know, legs crossed. It's everything to do with creating space in your time, in your day to connect with what matters. And maybe you could just share the story that you told at the talk that I saw recently about how you, when you discovered that that was almost like the new purpose that you had and the, <laughs> yeah. the thing that you were going to then, yeah. you said this light bulb moment of this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. And that's interesting as well, because um, on the one hand, it was there. On the other hand, it took someone else to reflect back to me mm. what they saw. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So we were on a, it was on Altitude with the wonderful Lawrence and Carlos, you know, the, the marvellous programme they do in Dream Valley. Uh, um, and I, Jack Hubbard introduced me to these guys and said, I th- he said, I think you should do this programme. And I said, well, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not in my 30s. You know, what the hell am I doing that? But what I was. you mean in your 30s? Well, That's that was gonna... my, you don't. You t- obviously you don't. Because I went. me out for next year. <laughs> <laughs> that was my concept of it. Um, and I was wrong. Um, so I took Jack's advice. I trusted that. And I went. And we, the, it's a wonderful week where you spend a lot of time just having conversations and allowing things to emerge. And, and one of the, but one of the planned activities was to walk up to a refuge, spend the night there, and then walk back down the next day. And it was the walking back down the next day when our guide, great guide, Arno, um, who I know, uh, just pulled me over. We stopped to have a, a snack and a drink in a nice clearing. And he just pulled me over to one side and he said, I think it might be nice to do some reflection now. Could you do that thing you do? <laughs> I'm like, what thing? And I realised, okay, I, I have this thing that I do that feels relevant and helpful now. And so I did it. And and then I realised that's what I now do. And I've, been, I've built on that and I've designed a lot of stuff around it. But essentially what I do is hold the space for people to connect with what matters in their lives. Mm. Can you maybe just, maybe just say a little bit more about how you how you get people into that? space and how like uh, right. the so process of that and how that happened it depends you know classic art it depends yeah. so but there will be it, people listening to this who yeah. are very familiar with mindfulness and there probably will be people yeah. who are listening to this who've never really tried okay any of that stuff and it feels different right all right so what i do like any you know person teaching anything to anyone is i figure out first who i'm talking to so uh, obviously i don't know who's listening to this so that's a bit more difficult but if i'm in a room with a group of people I want to know what they know and I want to know what they expect and I want to know how to position this stuff in a way that is going to feel relevant and helpful to them. Mm. One of the things I do that seems to be universally quite helpful is a a workshop I call The Power of Pause uh, where I teach people how to pause, which is ridiculous, but it's a skill. And so I think that's probably the most generic thing that I do that works across, as I just said, it works yeah. across a number of different audiences. And so that's about a simple tool, three-step process, <laughs> where you pause, you press like an internal pause button, it can be anywhere you like, whatever works. You literally pause. You shift your focus into your body. And I tend to invite people to focus into the space somewhere between the kind of sense of where their heart is and where their stomach is, where their abdomen is, because that's a very powerful place of creativity and connection. Mm. It's called the solar plexus and it's it's a energetically, I don't want to go into all that kind of chakra stuff, but just, you know, energetically it's a very powerful place to yeah. focus your awareness. So I I say to people, right, pause, focus, focus into that space. Even if you have to yank yourself down, just do it. And then breathe. 
And okay, you were breathing before. What I mean by breathe is become aware of your breath. And typically what I find is when people become aware of their breath, it, it changes. The awareness of the breath changes it in some way, tends then to become deeper. And so if you pause, shift your awareness, breathe as if you were breathing into that space. So you're kind of creating space, creating energy in just one minute you notice a difference. Mm. So anyone out there that fancies trying it right now, pause, focus, breathe. And after about a minute, notice how you feel. And that's all you need to do. And if you want to do 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 45, feel free. And I would encourage it. And if you can build a practice of mindfulness into your everyday life, fabulous. But don't not do this. Don't not take a minute in your day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't not do. That. But you know what I mean. You've yeah, got, this has yeah, got to absolutely. be. Do, this has got to be done. Mm. And if you can't manage five or ten because you're just too flipping busy, for goodness' sake, learn how to take a minute because it will change. The, mm. ne- the next thing you do will be different because you took that minute. Massively, I did a year of extreme productivity experiments on my blog oh, okay. um, a couple of years back, and um, yeah. one of them was. I can't remember what we called that one, but it was, so they all had like names and one of them was basically let's play around with mindfulness. So what I did was I started to do, um, I did the headspace take 10 thing, okay, yeah, um, but yeah. I would, would do it at the top of every hour. So yeah. between zero minutes and 10 minutes, I'd be meditating and then the other 50 minutes I'd be working. Okay. And what I experienced in terms of the level of focus that it brought to the other 50 minutes was really profound. And yeah. I'd, meditated before and I do yoga and lots of things like that but I'd never really put it as you know as kind of cynically or as or as kind of directly in a kind of productivity context before Mm. I mean it's obviously I talk about mindfulness in in the book and everything but just to say hey I'm going to do this for 10 minutes and then watch what happens to the 50 just the level of focus I was having and my clarity of thinking and my ability to screen things out and my ability to say no to things massively increased yeah during that time and and so back to your thing of if you don't have if you feel like you don't have the time to take five or ten minutes or even to take one minute then i would massively challenge that because i, I think yeah. when you see the results from that yeah. it's actually an investment of five or ten minutes that makes the rest rest of that time much better and more productive right? and so when you um i know you're the interviewer here but let me just ask you a question when you did that 10 minutes and i think that's amazing and uh fantastic to have explored that and experimented with it and really be able to talk about it from a place of having done that so when you took that 10 minutes and you said like, it was massively more focused for the next 50 what can you put your finger on what it was exactly that changed well i think there's i mean you talked before about the, the pause and breathing and kind of saying you know these are just it feels ridiculous to say breathe because that's the thing that everybody does and pausing you know but i think so you can look at those things in that way, but actually to, but they're both very powerful things too. So I think once you start to, like you say, once you start to focus on breathing, it tends to slow down a bit. So you are changing your mental state. And so when you're working in a way that your brain is your tool, you've done something different to your, the biggest tool that you have. Right. <laughs> so, so that feels obvious mm. um, underneath that. I don't really know. Like, I don't know what it is about yeah. mindfulness that brings more focus. I don't know why slowing down your breathing yeah. has that impact. I just know that it does. It's yeah. a bit like that thing. I used to watch um, the Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer thing, and they used to do this weird uh, thing where they'd sort of sell really weird products, and um, Bob Mortimer would go, yeah, hey, Vic, how does it work? And Vic Reeves as well goes, I don't know, but it does. I love it. And I think yeah. it's kind of, for me, that's the mm. thing with, with, um, with mindfulness in general is that it seems to just have this yeah. effect and impact yeah. on things. Yeah. And it's sometimes, sometimes it does it in a way that feels kind of magical or it's like a little bit kind of, Ooh, you know, this has changed. I don't know why, but it does have that effect. And yeah. so, yeah, that's, I suppose that's my experience of it. Maybe, Maybe if I was a neuroscientist or... Uh, but you, you noticed... Know, maybe there are different ways so of explaining that. Okay. No, but I mean, that, that was your experience. Yeah. And that's what matters. And, and uh, one of the, often people say they just feel calmer because mm. they 
because they feel calmer, they can think more clearly. Well, you know what the opposite feels like. And we know that when we're highly stressed and rushing around and feeling anxious, that we don't think that clearly, actually. Yeah. But there's, yeah, there's stuff going on when we practice mindfulness at a physiological level, which sends, you know, shifts things in the brain, you know, activates the prefrontal cortex and calms the emotional center of the brain and all kinds of stuff going on, which is now being researched and proven and blah, blah, uh, which uh, explains why you felt better. But what matters is that you feel it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I often think of it a little bit like a sort of computer rebooting, or you know, like if you, so if your phone's going a bit weird and it's doing weird stuff, if you turn it off and turn it on again, you just, you know, for me, yeah. the turning on and turning turning it off and turning it on again is almost yeah. like slow down your breathing, pause. Yes. And so, you know, I just I, I just feel like if there's if there's that bigger shift in things, then and you know that that's there and you know that it works and you know it's a tool for you, then why would you not? You quite use that regularly. Quite. And once you start doing it, um, and I do it now out of sheer joy and pleasure, it's not a chore. I miss it if I don't. And now mm. it's just completely embedded yeah. in my day to day, for sure. So you're growing an internal muscle, some metaphorical muscle within you that you are, but you are growing it. It may be metaphorical because I don't know where it is. Yeah. But it is something that you're training. You're opening a new pathway. And like anything else, like, you know, doing your bicep curls at the gym, you're growing a muscle which then helps you to be stronger, so to speak, or more effective or more um, empowered or whatever it is you want to be. It will help that thing. For sure. And also resilience as well. So I think I feel like the time where I notice it most now is so i really hate queuing it's <laughs> uh, to me queuing is like no. death right it's no. just the uh, <laughs> and just waiting you just feel like i'm just kind of wasting yeah. 10 minutes because the bus is going to take 10 minutes or whatever those things are you know and um you know and if you in the supermarket and there's four people in front of you and it's like and you can see that the one at the front is faffing around and you're like <laughs> and I notice often in those moments now yeah. I start doing the mindfulness thing yeah. right? and, it's like, <laughs> and it's like okay Graham just breathe and, we're, and suddenly I'm like oh I'm so lucky to be here in the supermarket queue and you know it just actually just changes my whole way of thinking totally. about it and, and that's probably the thing that I most right. notice day and to what, day which is a lovely thing okay let me do a little interpretation then you challenge me if I'm wrong here, but I think what's happening is you're becoming more present. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. That's so your whole, absolutely your focus has shifted from the end of the queue yes. with the irritating person yeah. uh, or the beginning of the queue, depending on how you look at it, and, and, and the fact that you're present mm. in this amazing yeah. place with these interesting people, and yet it completely changed. So that's that. the other thing about mindfulness is that the only time we're really alive is right now, which is logical. Yeah. But how much of our time do we spend in the past and the future? And how flipping daft is that? Of course, we need to. It's helpful to reflect on the past to decide what we're going to learn from it, I think. Um, I believe. It's also helpful to plan for the future and it's exciting to anticipate stuff. And I don't want to knock any of that. But where it comes sort of anxious scenario planning or, you know, guilty action replay, then it's just pointless. So when we notice ourselves doing that, we can catch it. Switch it, you know, switch the focus, breathe, and allow that to dissipate. We can't push it away. You know what you're like, you know, the, the more you focus on something, the more it grows. So no, you can't push mm. it away. That doesn't work. But what you can do is shift your effect, attention, come into the present moment, notice your breath. And what happens is it kind of dissolves. It might take a while. You know, some things are big and huge and they take a while to dissipate like the thing I was talking about to me a few years, you know, it's not, it's not an, an overnight job, yeah. but with um, the practice of coming back to the present, back to the breath, practicing gratitude, like, aren't I lucky to be in the supermarket? Yeah. Yeah. You know, being grateful, that's a massively powerful thing mm. for um, allow allowing yourself to let go of the things that are just completely unhelpful and unproductive, you know, speaking to your, um, thing that's been your thing for a while you know it's just not that helpful and you know everything you're just saying about the living in the present moment versus living in the past and the future mm. most people's self-talk about work is that past replay stuff and the future yeah. this is terrifying kind of yeah. still planning whatever so it's all past and future and so again back to the the productivity benefits of mindfulness i think 
part of that is just being able to be in that present moment yeah. and just focus on that one thing yeah. is it's just a huge part of it. Can I tell you a little story? Because mm. um, well, I like to remember this story because it reminds me of where I was, so to speak, you know, with all of this a few years back. That first retreat I told you about, I went on Plum Village. Um, we were taught what they call the mindfulness trainings. So there's 10 of them total. I think we were taught the first five. And it's all the things that, all the ways of living um, around just things that you, if you're going to be a mindfulness practitioner in their way of doing it, that you would buy into. But they're pretty laid back about it. You know, they appreciate that you're a human and that you may not be able to do it all to the letter, but you might set an intention around yeah. it. So it's a helpful thing. But there was one that really bothered me, and it might sound a bit odd to say it, but it was um, about not killing anything. Hmm. Now, I'm not somebody who routinely kills things, and actually I'd prefer to let a fly out of my house than squat it, but, um, swat it, but, you know, and I'm very sensitive to, to things in nature. But it troubled me because I started to think about situations in which killing might be necessary. I know that's a bit bizarre, okay. but I did. And... It was bothering me to the extent that the wonderful Italian monk that was leading this thing, I went up to him at the end of this session and I said, can I talk to you about this? And he batted me off. And he said, no, I'm a bit busy now, um, but maybe later in the week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> so I had to sit with this flipping thing for two or three days. Um, and of course it changed. And by the time... I just love the idea of a monk being really busy. <laughs> and of course, I don't think he was. I think he just knew what I needed. Yeah. He was just incredibly smart. And so what happened was, by the time he came up to me one day and said, do you want to talk about that thing now? And I said... Uh, and I'd all, I hadn't forgotten what it was, but of course it lost its power yeah, and intensity. Yeah. So it was less intense, less powerful. But I said, yeah. And I, I said, look, so here's a situation and I told him a situation where it might be necessary in self-defense and da, 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 da. And I was sort of, and he said to me, and listen, he listened patiently to my little story. And he said, um, so do you want to kill someone now? And I said, well, no, not, not now, <laughs> but I might in the future. And he just said, well, <laughs> and he, just, <laughs> he just said, well, keep practicing. And when the time comes, you'll know what to do. Wow. And that was it. And that was another one of those moments where I felt incredibly small and stupid, but that was okay because I learned this huge thing. Mm. And so when I catch myself now doing the what ifs and all the, oh my God, it's going to be awful. Blah, 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 and I might have that genuine fear. And I'm not saying that you, one should suppress that fear because it's kind of there, but it's just like, yeah, you talk to the fear and you say, hello, fear. There you are again. Thank you very much. I'd rather you weren't there, but you're there. But you no, know, you know what? I'm going to just keep with what I know. I'm just going to keep with what I absolutely believe. And I've practiced and I've researched and I know it works. And it will be okay because I'll show up as myself, mm. whatever that is, and t you know, but with skill, I hope, you know, and and it will be all right. And so there's the trust. So no, this was like massive, huge. Wow. Mm. Such a great story. <laughs> and like that Italian monk, I'm so grateful to him. Yeah. Cool. Smart, smart bloke. Mm. Um, so how, so you obviously had this really interesting journey of, you know, immersing yourself in this, going to Plum Village, you know, really living it. Yeah. How does that now like how does that translate into the work that you do and 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 also i guess a sort of supplementary question to that at the same time is like you're obviously now working with people from a range of different corporations organizations mm. and they don't have necessarily that same immersion that you've had so how do you get people to uh to be interested in that and and kind of immersed in that in a, in a much kind of shorter sense so maybe just talk a little bit about, about the programs you do and yeah. how, you, how you bring people yeah. to that space yeah i think that's something that um i yeah it's taken a while so when i was into the mindfulness thing and just realizing how amazing it was i was in a space of whoa this is fantastic i have to share it with the world mm. but of course it was my thing and the trick with anything 
that you're trying to teach and share is obviously the, the, the um, I think essentially the language, you know, is getting the language right so that people can relate to it. So there's no point me showing up in an organisation which has never heard of mindfulness or, or has heard of it and doesn't want to go there and talk about mindfulness. I might talk about how do you want to be more focused? Hmm. How do you want to think more clearly? And I might, mindfulness might not even come into the conversation, but I will share tools that I've adapted. That's the other thing. So I've taken, you know, the concept of mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness, and I've um, developed very pragmatic tools so that people will do it, like my pause tool, like yeah. the one minute thing, so that people will do it. Because what matters is that they at least do it. So to answer your question, um, the programs I do now uh, have have evolved. So from realizing the need to adapt the language to focus on the outcome that people are looking for and how to get to that point, but not you know, honoring mindfulness, but honoring it in a way that enables it to be applied. I mean, actually, Thich Nhat Hanh, this, you know, I mentioned earlier, the Zen Buddhist master, he, he talks about engaged Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist, but he doesn't see much point to Buddhism. No, I mustn't speak for him in that way. I don't mean what I just said. Of course, he sees a massive point to Buddhism. What I mean is, is that what he feels is important about it is to make it relevant. So he, mm, he, he, okay. used, he uses the term engaged Buddhism so that you engage with it in a way that you bring into your everyday life. And all his writing is about how to make it, how to simplify it and yeah. come into the, bring it into the day to day. So that, and I, you know, I think I've learned a lot from reading his stuff around simplifying and, and, and being pragmatic. So the programs I do now after years of working with this stuff, Graham, is um, I, just over actually the, the big project this year for me the big piece of work this year has been developing a leadership program which i've called evolving leadership which is over a nine month span because i've also learned um i don't think it's come up yet but i'm a, a leadership coach i don't know if I, I can't remember if we've said that already but i'm a leadership coach so what i've learned about coaching and why i love coaching is that if people want to change their behaviours, if people want, to, in order to become more effective, more productive, something about your existing behaviour has to change, right? Yeah. But behavioural change takes time, which is why some training programmes, depending on how they're managed and depending on what the follow-up is and depending on how they're integrated into everyday life, may not work because they, you know, a training programme per se without follow-up is kind of time limited and people can have a fantastic program which you know feels amazing and as you know and they, they but they go back to work and it's then quite challenging to change their existing habits yeah for sure in and become whatever it is they want to become so coaching is pretty cool because it, it happens over an extended period of time where the practice in between is as is as important as the actual sessions. So I guess what I'm saying in a very long-winded way is that behavioural change takes time and that the effort needs to be sustained. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And I'm really clear with people about this. If you're not prepared to put in the effort, it won't happen. You know, I can, I have, you have to meet me halfway. So the Evolving Leadership Programme is all of that learning and all of my mindfulness practice brought into a programme to support leaders to become more enlightened. And they become more enlightened by understanding themselves better and by mastering themselves. Now, self-mastery is a lifelong, lifelong work. But what I mean by self-mastery is managing the space between whatever's just happened and the way you respond to it. So between, as I think Viktor Frankl is, is ascribed to Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, I think is ascribed to him the wonderful learning that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And that is the space of your development. And when you think mm, about it, okay. and when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Because if you're used habitually to responding to a certain thing in the same way every time, mm. but it's not working anymore, then you need to change the way you respond to it. Because that thing's probably still going to be there. The only thing you can change is how you deal with it. So, and you're not going to be able to do that unless you create the space to step back and choose 
a different response. Mm, so that's what behavioural change. That's what behavioural change essentially is. Yeah. And mindfulness supports that because of the whole space creating thing. It supports people to do that. Supports people to pause because you're creating this muscle, as I said earlier. So it's all kind of integrated into supporting leaders to understand themselves better, to develop what I call the uh, inner leader. Um, so to set a really clear purpose and intention to develop that inner leader, and the Latter, in the latter part of the program, we explore a thing called mindful command, which is the literal integration of mission command, which is my naval training about leadership mm. around clarity of intent and mindfulness. So bringing the sense of present moment awareness and centered energy to clarity of purpose and intention. Nice. And as a leader, those are essential. I'd love to hear a little bit more about about mission command and um, that just feels like an intriguing yeah. thing to unpack yeah well he talked this guy talks about it in the book and mm. what but what mission command is is it's the the underlying tenet of naval leadership which is that whoever's whoever's the bloke in charge so let's say the commander or woman yeah so yeah <laughs> cool moment, yeah thanks um the person in charge um the commander let's say uh the starting point is the clarity of that person's in Tent. So that person has to start by being absolutely clear about mm. what the mission is all about and what needs to be achieved and what and what resources are needed to do it. And if you haven't got enough resources, how are you going to adapt? What your contingency is going to be? But the point is you need to be clear yeah. that, about what you need to do, how you need to do it, and the people that you've got and how you use their skills and where everyone fits and what their role is. And that all needs to be clear. And that's the kind of the commander's job. And um, would the commander write a sort of purpose statement or a, would there be a purpose phrase that is written down somewhere that describes what that, yeah. what the mission is? So in the day-to-day, -day, you know, so within the Navy, there's multiple organisations, so or multiple mm. sort of parts of it. So in your part of it, when you've got your day-to-day -day running of that part, you're going to have things like a mission statement. You're going to have all that stuff, which is just like any other place yeah. that you yeah. may have worked. Um and you're going to have your values and all of those things that are going to be clear that everyone needs to buy into. But then there's also the kind of operational environment yeah. where things are happening to which you need to respond. And the, and, and the team looks to the leader to be clear about what that needs to be. Yeah. So there's those. So could you give an well. example of what one of those things might be? Okay. So it's kind of like, let's, let's think about a ship at sea yeah. uh, on an operation whether it's in a war zone or it's just an exercise or whatever it is, where you're practicing enabling the ship to work well and for the teams within it to do their job. So you're going to have the overarching um, way that the ship is run, and that does largely come from the commanding officer of the ship. So you're going to have the overarching, this is how we do things around here, you know, the culture, the, the, the way of, of running the ship, which is aligned to the Naval Discipline Act yeah. that I mentioned earlier, which is aligned to all kinds of other rules that come from the Ministry of Defence about how ships are run. And but, then, but the culture could be different on every ship. The culture... Because I wouldn't have expected that. I would have expected it would be okay. very homogenised. And that's what's interesting. And you know mm. what? I was lucky enough to have a job once where uh, I had to visit lots of ships. Yeah. I was actually shore-based at the time, but I had to go on board different ships yeah. to do this particular work I was doing. You know what I got? So I, as I went over the gangway, that thing at the top yeah. of, the, of the, the thing you walk up, I got so that when I got to the top of that, I could tell what kind of ship it was. Wow, that's mad. Because it was in the eyes of the people who yeah. welcomed me on board. Wow. And it was always down to the commanding officer who mm. I would then later meet. And you could just see the cause and effect of all of that. So the, it's the, it's the, the leader is the embodiment of the culture that yeah. they want the team or, or the group or the organisation to be. Now, I'm not... That's fascinating. And I think this can also happen extremely well in self-managed organisations, mm. by the way. I'm not saying you always have to have a hierarchy to make this stuff work. And in fact, when it comes down to it, once the commander has set his or her intent and everyone knows what they're doing and they all take responsibility, it kind of becomes self-managed. Yeah, yeah. But what's necessary yeah. at the beginning is that clarity. 
And it might be bottom-up clarity. It might be that the commander chooses to sit down with the team if they've got time and say, you know what, we've got this thing we've got to do. I want everyone's input. And then they'll brainstorm it Mm. and then all agree what it's going to be. And then that becomes the thing. So there's different ways of doing this stuff. But what matters is that someone sort of takes charge, makes it happen, and that clarity is achieved. Well, it sounds like the get having a process to get to the place of here's our total clarity and we all buy into it is, yeah. is the thing, isn't it? So you could do that self-manage from the start, yeah. but also it's probably, it probably feels like it's an easier thing for it to be. And I guess that's kind of the way it's structured because it yeah. is a hierarchical organisation, yeah. so that's what you're working with, you know, but there are plenty of flat structures yeah. within that because of this whole thing of, of personal responsibility. That's because, mm. you know, self-managed organisations aren't going to work without that either. So that's what's that's the, the fundamental value is that is and people realizing that and so so whether you're down as a stoker down in the engine room doing that job or whether you're up on the bridge being a navigator you, your role is equally important. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, work-life balance and okay. productivity, which are two very big yeah. themes here on Beyond Busy. Um, so, would you? identify yourself as a productive person first of all yeah i think so yeah i, I think it's just in the way i am yeah. i i would say yes to that question <laughs> as well I, you know, <laughs> it wasn't a trick question no 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 i'm a, i mean i've got this thing within me that kind of strives mm. and actually mindfulness helps because it helps me to quieten that mm. but i know that about myself yeah and i believe in i have certain beliefs around lifelong learning and around life being for living no matter what age you are and and that for me life is just keep opening up opening up opening up not closing down and I'm lucky because I'm healthy and all that stuff so I can do that but I would also say I've kind of worked at keeping myself healthy and I eat sensibly and exercise all those things so I've kind of coming to your balance I've ensured that whilst I'm productive um i work towards the balance of all of that because I know that if I don't look after those parts of myself then I won't be very productive yeah for sure you know you can't you just it's not sustainable do you feel like so I sometimes feel like with productivity I I found teaching it very easy because it wasn't a thing that I found easy to learn right so I I sometimes feel like the stuff that you struggle with is the stuff that you can identify the struggle with in other people. Yes. Makes it easy to teach. That's so, that's really true. And yeah. is that true of you with mindfulness around, I know how powerful this is for me because I need to switch off and I need to yeah. get out of that striving productive mode. Was that a thing for you? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm a good coach because I have experienced all that stuff. I know how hard it is. Hmm. Um, and I've had certain experiences in my life that have been painful um, that I don't need to go into here. But I think that does give me a natural empathy and understanding of, uh, you know, other people's stuff. And I never pretend it's easy. Yeah. I say it's simple because I do aim to simplify like I think you do really mm. well. But I don't call it easy. That's a nice distinction. So it's simple but not easy. Yeah. That's a lovely distinction. Yeah, and it's important to understand that different that thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe you subliminally did or something, but mm. you know, it's just how we articulate these things. But I, um, I think it's a helpful distinction for people to realise. And uh, it's no point pretending something's easy when it's not. And actually, you know what? If we're finding it hard, it's important to acknowledge that actually and acknowledge the hardness of it so that we can work with that hardness yeah, yeah. otherwise you're kind of suppressing it and pretending and that's not going to work so yeah i f- i found it it took me a long time some people might have achieved what i achieved in a much less time i don't mm. know okay. it, t- it took me a while <laughs> um and the final thing i was going to ask you about is um sacrifice so were there things that you ended up not realizing you had to sacrifice but you did through your career or things that you've knowingly had to sacrifice to be able to do what you've done? Oh, goodness me. I think I don't like to regret things because the rational part of my brain says that's pointless. However, I think if I sacrificed anything, it was spending time with my kids. Hmm. So because I know the pain of that, of that realisation... And I made it better when they were teenagers. I kind of woke up to that when they were teenagers. So I think we, we were okay then. But when they were little, yeah. if I'm brutally honest, it wasn't my thing. 
And I hate to hear myself saying that, so I'm being very honest here. I um, think that's super um, wise and honest to say because it is. it feels like a bit of a taboo thing, doesn't it, to be able to say that? I know, I know. I don't um, like to say it because yeah. I would also have the voice in my head saying, so why did you become a mother then? Yeah. So awful, horrible, complex questions that... Um, uh, just human, I suppose. But no, I just wasn't, I felt I wasn't very good at it. You know what? Now when I spend time with other people's kids and maybe I'm kind of making up or something, I realise I'm actually not bad at it, <laughs> it turns out. But I told myself I wasn't very good at it, I think is what happened. Wow. Uh, and so I didn't relax into it. Mm. And I was too busy striving and being productive. I love the idea of all these people listening to this right now going, you're supposed to relax into it. <laughs> How the fuck does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can, it's going to be easier. Um, but I made it difficult because I mm. didn't. So, and I don't think I was like bad. And people say, no, you weren't. You know, but I have this thing about that I wasn't that great. Mm. So what that then I took from all of that was that it is what it is, right? So yeah. it's past. Yeah. From this moment onwards, I'm not going to do that again. And every moment I have, I'm going to learn from this thing that I felt I didn't do very well. Mm. And I'm not, you know, that's, so that's my way of dealing with that. And then, um, but there was something, there's just moments, you know, where you read something and you suddenly burst into tears for no reason. And there was something I read about spontaneity and I realised I wasn't spontaneous. With, in, in parenting terms or just for you? In parenting terms. Mm. I think I was frightened of it. Mm. I was too busy planning and all that stuff. So mindfulness helped me with all of that. It helped me be more present. It helped me appreciate what is. It helped me let go of what really doesn't matter. Yeah. It helped me just enjoy, like you enjoying being in the supermarket queue. It's that kind of thing. Helped me just enjoy hanging out with my kids. Yeah. And just being with whatever is. And so there's a, there's something that if I'd known this 10 years before, would have been different. But hey, I didn't. And I do now. So there we mm. are. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 10 years, you know, you've learned it now rather than 10 years later. Yeah. As well, so you have to be grateful so for Very that grateful for that. Yeah. And the relationship I now have with my kids, um, you know, I think is all the better for it. Mm. That's lovely. Um, I just had a bit of a kind of follow up question for that, which is just, you know, as a, as a sort of working parent myself, um, and there's always, the thing, you know, I've definitely experienced this more being a, it's I have this weird thing where I'm a single dad for half the week and then I'm, and then I'm kind of like a non-parent for half the week. It's kind of weird. Um, but I've got really into all this sort of stuff on uh, Twitter and everywhere else about kind of um, women who have it all and men who have it all and this whole sort of, you know, how that's, it's, it's more of a thing for, for women than men, I think, generally but I'm kind of in the situation where I can really see what that's like of having to try and juggle the two and whatever. Do you think people do ever get that perfect or do you think, is there always compromise or like just what are your reflections on not only yourself, but other people that you've worked with? And I imagine, I was just imagining as you were talking, maybe there's a thing where you would sort of compare yourself to other people who are in those similar situations yeah. and, and just what would be your reflections on that? Well, my reflection now, and this is, has evolved, um, is that whenever we catch ourselves doing that, stop. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a great first step. <laughs> <laughs> because it's pretty pointless. Yeah, and, sure. and all we're doing then is setting up some kind of perfect ideal scenario. And it's all in our head. Mm. And we're never going to live up to it. We're always going to judge ourselves to be imperfect against this perfect thing. And whatever it is that people, whenever somebody says they've got it all, no, they haven't. What is it all? Mm. This is it all right now. This yeah. is this conversation. Yeah, it's it all. It's sure. wonderful and it's fun and it's enlightening and whatever. And no, I, there isn't it all. And there isn't mm. perfect. Perfect is now. There is perfect because perfect is now. Perfect is this life that we're living in gratitude and whatever. And it isn't some flipping scenario that um, we invent, invent in our mind. That's the route to unhappiness. That just feels like the most perfect way to, to wrap up. Um, <laughs> it really does. Um, okay. So thank you so much for being here, being on the podcast. And I hope for encouraging everybody to just feel 
very present and in the moment right now as they're listening to this. Um, and we're going to get you a taxi and head off to Propellanet and do you can do more of your thing over well, there. Well, I'm having a chat with someone there, yeah. which is lovely. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Cool. And then you have a weekend of London adventures and various other things. Yeah, planned, so. a very nice conference on Friday and staying with a friend tonight. So I'm very lucky. Cool. <laughs> Um, how can people find out about your leadership program and get in touch with you? Okay, so please, if anyone's interested, go on to skillfulleaders.com or Google me, Sally Ann Airy, and the website will tell you what you need to know, I think. Yeah. So thanks to Sally Ann for being on the show. As ever, links, everything else, you'll find at getbeyondbusy.com. So if you go to the website, you'll find all the previous episodes and lots of resources relating to this episode as well. Uh, thanks as ever to Mark Steadman, my producer for the show. And if you want to find out more about what he does, you'll also find details and links to him over at getbeyondbusy.com as well. Um, he's always interested in talking to you about your podcast projects pipe dreams whatever it might be uh you know there's been two or three people actually who've kind of reached out to me over the course of doing beyond busy and said hey who's the guy who does all your podcast stuff and i think he's now working with a couple of people so uh he's always uh, happy to uh hear those those kind of thoughts from you so drop him a line and if you want to find out more about what i do graham is a good place to start and also thinkproductive.com will give you more details about productivity workshops if you want to bring us into your company and shake up productivity then drop us a line thinkproductive.com you'll find a contact form on the site and everything else um, social media at Graham Alcott on the Twitter and Instagram and Graham at thinkproductive.co.uk on the email love to hear your thoughts basically um, the the sort of purpose of doing this podcast uh, was originally because I was writing a book called Beyond Busy. I still am. I'm just writing about another three before I get to it. So I do have a I have a book deal for Beyond Busy, but the deadline is 2021, I think it is or something. It's ridiculous. Uh, so I'm doing a couple of other things before that. But this is really a kind of very long, slow burn piece of research for me uh, to get towards a book about how do we all get beyond the sense of busyness and get into feeling more purposeful. And I think certainly with this episode it really felt like Sally Ann had some really good um, thoughts around some of that stuff and we've been kind of chatting on WhatsApp since actually about uh, some of her concepts and how that can help people to get beyond busy so I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on all of that drop me a line and say hi and we'll see you in two weeks time for another episode of Beyond Busy for now though take care bye This podcast is produced by Podient. To find out more, visit podientproductions.com.